Okay. Um, maybe the dunce cap there in the corner, right? That was, a, that was an okay way to treat students. Um, and some of those things, it's really good that those do not exist, you know? Like, they, like demoralizing students, not a good thing. Um, but today, it's, it's kind of the opposite, right? If a, if a teacher gives a student a bad grade, then what I can expect as a teacher, if, if it's a parent who's fairly involved, is that I'm gonna get a call about what I'm doing to make sure that that student did not get a bad grade. So I've gotta give a defense for myself on why that student failed, or why that student got a D, or whatever. Or maybe I made a disciplinary decision in the middle of the classroom, and the teacher here, or the, the student goes home, tells his or her parents, I've got to give an account of why I did the thing that I did. And you know, they, they maybe give a, a piece of the story, and they're like, Mr. Pope, he, he got so mad and he sent me out of the room, and all I did was whisper to my friend. And it's like, ah, that's, yes, that did happen. He, that person did whisper to their friend, but it was after they threw raisins across the room and then they were cussing somebody out and then they whispered to their friend. You know, like, it's not just that little piece, but I've got to give an account. I've got to be ready to give a defense for why I would make the decision that I do. And that's a big change. Like, there's been a big change, not just at the school level, but kind of just in general. Um, in, in our community, and I would say probably our nation at large, there's a, there's a change in how we trust authority, right? Um, authority figures are not trusted simply because they hold a position. You don't say that person is a teacher, therefore they know what they're doing, right? And kind of rightfully so. Does every teacher know what they're doing? No, we all know an example of someone who did not do the right thing, okay? Um, maybe, this, this comes at the level of you seeing an authority figure, even a pastor, right, in a church who abused authority. Like said, I have this authority, and they misuse their power for gain. Maybe they've been embezzling. Or they use the emotional connection that they have with their church in order to have an affair, right? This happens. This isn't uncommon. Authority has been abused. We see this at the state level, right? Government leaders will abuse their authority in order to find gain. Even in the White House, we can see this take place. Like this is very common in history. This isn't even new to right now. But right now, I think there's, we're living in a cultural moment where there's a distrust of authority. And it's not unwarranted. Like there, there is a reason for it. However, we carry this um, questioning of authority into our approach to God. Maybe it's the Bible. And we, we come to the Bible and we say, okay, it's, maybe it's true, I don't know, but you gotta prove it, all right? There was a time whenever you, you went to church and someone quoted a verse and you said, it's true, like because it came out of the Bible. Today, quote a verse and it's like, okay, well, that was probably written by somebody 500 years after the fact. Who really believes that anyways? Like, what relevance does this have to my life? There's a questioning of authority. Maybe it's the legitimacy of the miracles that take place in the Bible. Maybe it's Jesus's identity as God. Maybe you believe, yeah, he was a good moral teacher, but was he really 
God? Did he really raise from the dead? People have called that into question. Um, and even the existence of a God with the theory of evolution, do we even really need a first mover? Like, do we need a God who started the Big Bang or is it just something that happened in the universe? All of these things are, have come into question um, pretty recently in world history. Um, C.S. Lewis noticed this 70 years ago. And I read his essay, God in the Dock, um, maybe like five years ago, and this image has just stuck in my mind. And I've got a few volunteers um, that are going to come forward, and we're going to set up a scene, okay? Uh, this is what Lewis said, and we're going to illustrate it through uh, the scene. But it, he said, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock, or God is the one up for questioning. He's qu quite a kind judge, man is. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial might even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is in the judgment seat and God is in the dock. So I wanna, I wanna lay this out for you, okay? So I've got some volunteers. Uh, Cherish is one of them. I don't know if she remembers that. <laughs> All right, so Cherish is gonna play uh, man, meaning human. Man is here in the judgment seat, okay? So man is the judge making the decisions. All right, Dustin here is going to play God. He's gonna step right over here. Um, and over here we have a witness, no, you're the witness. So typically the witness stand I think is just off from where the judge is. So we've got Lacey as our witness. And over here we have the prosecuting attorney, okay? So this is our courtroom. And this courtroom that Lewis has set up, he says it, it used to be one way, but this is the way it looks now. Every human is kind of born into thinking that they get to decide whether God's off the hook for all the things he's done, all right? So God stands here, and he's, he's, got, a, he's, he's got to defend his position. Did he do the right thing, or do, was he not responsible for those things? Um, some of the witnesses that the prosecutor, um, which I would say is our reason, the way that we think through things, right? So our reason calls up some witnesses. So over here, we have our witnesses, and we've got things like the brutality that we've seen in history. We've got disease. We've got suffering. We've got all the questions of science. And these things come up, and one by one, they make their case, and God stands there, and all he has is this super old book that seems really irrelevant, and in the end, you know, we make the decision, maybe we can let God off the hook. Maybe he's legitimate, but we're just going to maybe create God in our own image. And we're going to say, okay, he, this is just the God that created things and he's okay with how I live. And I don't really need to change anything. That, that God I'm okay with, okay? But the God who's involved in my personal business and actually tells me that there are things that I'm doing that are displeasing to him and actually hurt the people around me. That's not the God I want. 
That's the God who steps on my toes. In reality, what Lewis says, uh, what he, he brings up is the way that people looked at the judgment room throughout all of world history and the judgment room that we're going to see today is very stripped down. Instead of God being here, we see that God steps up to the judgment seat. Man steps down. There's no prosecutor. There are no witnesses. Before God comes man, and it's a one-on-one. -on -one. And that's all there is in the scene. And God makes a decision on whether or not you will enter into the kingdom or you will enter into eternal damnation, which is super uncomfortable for us to hear. That's the scene of the Bible. That's what we're going to read this morning. So I want you to look at Revelation chapter 20. Thank you guys for helping me. We're going to start in verse 11. In verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we look in your word, um, and as we consider our outlook that we are born into and that we just catch being a part of American society today, Lord, I, I pray that you would renovate our minds. Lord, you know that you know our hearts, you know our desires. Um, Lord, you know the way that we think. And Father, I pray that you would soften the hearts of us who are obstinate to changing our minds, to recognizing your truth. And Lord, help us to be open um, to what you, you say and to, to recognize that it is the only way that leads to life. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have two claims that I want to make. The first claim is that the God of the first courtroom does not exist. The courtroom where God stands here for questioning. This God, not real. This is a God of our own making. The first courtroom is a misunderstanding of ourselves as judge and God as creator. And despite my second claim, despite how much we hate judgy people, we want judgment, but we want it to be right. So I want to show you this as we break down this text. 
First of all, this text shows us that God is our judge. It says, the dead were judged according to their works. And it, it opens up there in verse 11, and it says, there I saw, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. Here at the beginning of this scene, and we're, we're in the middle of Revelation, and kind of, we're really towards the end of Revelation, the, scene, the, the war has taken place. We're not going to get into all of what Revelation says, but this is the end. Judgment is here. And John sees, here is God sitting upon the throne and judging every single person. So first of all, God is judge. Despite how much we we have this allergic reaction to judgments. This is how God is revealed here in Revelation. Over 600 years ago, a Polish astronomer named Nicholas Copernicus began to study the movement of the stars and the sun and eventually published his research on the revolutions of the celestial spheres. I'm sure most people have read this. It sounds thrilling. Um, he was the first to exclusively advocate for a sun-centered universe, which we all believe in today. Though some had made remarks of that hinting in the past, but the theory didn't really circulate until after his death. So he wasn't super controversial because his book didn't really gain traction, okay? But at this time, the official teaching of the Catholic Church was that all heavenly bodies revolved around the earth. They believed that this was taught in scripture and to deny a geocentric view or an earth-centered view would be to deny the faith, an absolute denial of the faith. A man named Galileo built a powerful tel telescope that he used to start observing the sky. He also came across Copernicus's book. And as he read it, and as he observed the moon, and as he observed the stars, he began to come to this same conclusion. And he said, what I've read in this book, the theory that I've seen about the sun being the center of the universe, seems to be the actual case. That it's not actually the earth that is the center, but the sun. The Catholic Church did not like this. Uh, this was during the Inquisition. They, they called Galileo into questioning. And they said, you have been accused of heresy, of denying the Catholic Church, and he, he was going to face death. And they, they called him to recant his belief, which he did. And for the last 10 years of his life, in old age, he was put under house arrest, even after recanting. Um, this was a serious change. Now, after Galileo's observations uh, that he had made prior to recanting, um, soon people began to accept, like, this is reality. But during the time, it was a radical heresy. The Catholic Church would not yield to this change because... They saw the Bible um, teaching that the earth was the center, that there was no way to accept the sun as the center without denying the church. Today, we can look back at this and say, are you serious? Everybody knows the sun's at the center of the universe. Galileo was as controversial as one would be today if all of a sudden you declared to this assembly here and you said, guys, we've been driving on the wrong side of the street all this time. We're supposed to be on the left side. Everybody's like, you're an idiot. What do you mean? You're going to die, right? That's, it's that radical, Galileo. Today, we must undergo a similar change. We are each born believing that we sit on the throne, that we 
judge God, that we judge this earth. Dietrich believes this. <laughs> he's born into it, all right? Like, not that I see sin in Dietrich right now. I know he's like a newborn. Like, I know that he's born into sin, but he really doesn't know enough to even do the wrong thing. But if, if I had to guess, I think there's one answer to every one of Dietrich's problems right now, and that's eating, right? He, if, if there were one way to make him be quiet every single time, I could just give him his bottle. And I think that's what he thinks he needs. But there are times that's not what he needs. He's got a dirty diaper, right? Or maybe he, he actually needs to stay awake a little bit longer so that he can sleep really well. There are things that he needs that Cherish and I have to determine because we know what's best for him. Even though he thinks food, 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 food. That's all he thinks, right? There's, there has to be a change in his thinking that comes from recognizing that my parents actually know what's best for me. And we have to train him. We must not exonerate God as the suspect of injustice, though we are born to think like this. It's not our job to say, well, okay, I guess I can get on board with this kind of God. But instead, we have to realize that we have the courtroom wrong. We are delusional. God is creator and we are creation. He is judge and we are the judged. His judgment is right and ours is skewed. The first hurdle we face in coming to Christ is realizing our mistaken place in the courtroom. Now that we've established this, now that we know that the courtroom is not us here, but instead us here, we'll turn to the actual scene. Now that we can understand what we think and what God actually says. We must ask the question, who will find themselves themselves right here in front of God. The passage makes it very clear that everyone, great and small, saw the dead, great and small, standing before God, and the books were opened. From the highest king to the beggar, to the president, to the, the common man, to the CEO, to the factory worker, to the teacher, to the billionaire, every single person from Hitler to Mother Teresa will appear right there. There's no escape from this scene. You will be in the presence of God judged. But with this scene, of billions upon billions waiting in a line, or I, I actually don't think it's gonna be a line and everybody's watching. I think it'll happen all at one time. But with this scene, um, with the billions of people in front of a huge white throne where the creator God sits, we must now recognize what's not there. There is no attorney, all right? In our courtroom, we have the attorney who there says, okay, this is my reason I'm, I'm going to begin to think through this, like decide on the case. Like if you ever do something wrong, I've gotten a few speeding tickets. I didn't go to court though. I just paid the speeding tickets. Um, but my understanding is if you go to court, the, the judge doesn't say, yes, I know exactly what happened. Here's the decision, right? It doesn't happen like that. What happens? The judge has to understand the truth before they can make a decision. 
They have to hear a testimony, maybe a character witness. There's the, the prosecutor is going to say, no, but this. And then the defense attorney is going to say, no, but this. And there's a back and forth. And then the judge is going to go out, or the, the, the judge, actually, well, the, what's the, the jury? There we go. The jury goes out, and they make a decision, and they vote. And they say, this is what we think based on the evidence that we have heard. And what we see is totally missing in this courtroom it's, is any of that. It's very minimalistic, right? We have God and we have you. There's no need for testimony or witnesses because there's nothing that God is unaware of. He knows how many hairs are on your head and he certainly knows what you've done. At those times, whenever students go, which this has happened, gone to the counselor to tell of something that I have done to them that's been wrong, and then I'm called in uh, because I've just been getting onto them while they're doing their work, uh, they, I have to explain the circumstances of what happened. When actually, the student just refused to do their work and was distracting the class and walked out of the room with, without permission. Students tend to leave some pretty important details out. These discrepancies don't exist with the Father. He sees our deeds. They're each recorded in his book. And based on what we've done, or based on what has been done, rather, he makes a judgment. Even if you think this is the way that things ha happened, like which, if you've ever been in a fight with your spouse, you know that you have an account, and then there's another account of what happened. And typically the truth is somewhere in between. Even though you both experienced the same event, you don't have a perfect understanding of what was taking place, do you? Sometimes I feel like I've got a rock solid case, you know? And I'm still wrong. Um, like I have to admit that I had some part of guilt, that I did something wrong. God doesn't have to work out those details. He doesn't have to sift through the facts or the lies and try to understand what has happened. He knows. And the final point that seems very clear in this passage, and that is also very uncomfortable, is there's, like a, there's a huge emphasis on works. If you see it, it comes up a couple times in this passage. And in the book of Revelation, if you read it from beginning to end, you're going to see there's a, there's a pretty big emphasis on works. What are we to do, that, do with this? You are going to be judged based on works. You will be judged based on works. As God looks in the books, he sees everything that has been done. And with his perfect knowledge, he decides if you are fit for the kingdom. But this is where we have to unlearn what we've learned. If this was about making a judgment of a potential spouse or a friend, maybe you would make a pros and cons list. This is a pretty common method of deciding things, right? So maybe you would say, okay, well, this person is a cool guy, but he's also full of himself at times. Um, he did pay for my meal once, so he's pretty generous, but he also complains about his job constantly. And then we think about it, and we're like, okay, I don't think I can be friends with that guy, right? Is that how God makes decisions? Is he like balancing out who you are and saying, is this the kind of person that I want to spend eternity with? 
It's not how God makes those decisions, right? The evaluation that we make is based on whether we like someone or whether they make us happy. God does not evaluate in this way. He looks at the world, the good world that he created, sustained by his grace and love, and he sees not only the good, but the bad. He sees sin. God sees everything in the world. Nothing is hidden from him. He sees a thriving pornography industry that grows in wealth by billions of dollars every single year by enslaving men and women. He sees those who make the industry possible by supporting it, by looking up pornography on their phones. He also sees the courageous men and women who step out of that life, step away from it to try to seek rehab, to try to seek peace where they had been enslaved. He sees the people who work in those rehab facilities to help them. He sees the common man, the, the Christian, someone who has been saved by God's grace, recognizes that they've done something wrong, and now they, they counsel younger men or women who struggle with pornography. God sees the bad, the evil, but he also sees the good. He sees the unfaithful, those who have been unfaithful to their spouse. He sees the faithful. He sees the drunk who drives, puts others at risk, maybe even has killed someone through a DUI. And he sees the AA sponsor, the person who, who goes to help addicts. He sees the thief and he sees the giver. He sees the prideful and the selfish as well as the humble. And just as we look at drunk drivers and rapists and child predators who in a time where a lot of, a lot of us would say, well, you see things one way, I see things another. We can, most people still agree on those things being very wrong. Um, just as we look at this, God sees the selfish desires that led to those repugnant actions. He doesn't just look on the outward appearance or he doesn't look at the actions that were the end result, but he sees the desires of the heart that well up within someone that leads to an action like that. And he doesn't just see it in the child predators and the rapists and the murderers. He sees it in us. He sees it in every single person. The same sin that drives the most heinous actions. And it grieves him. It leads, it led him to great compassion in sending his only son to die for us and to bring us freedom. To de declare freedom when we were enslaved to our evil passions. It leads him to that. But it also leads to wrath for those who would reject such a gift. Like he created a way of escape. God will not be content with jail time for every offender with hopes that they're just gonna turn it around in the end. He will once and for all take those who reject freedom in Christ and choose sin from the earth and cast them into hell to make way for his unbridled and eternal presence in the new heavens and the new earth where there are no more tears, there's no more pain, there's no more fear, there's no more suffering, there's no more shame. It'll all be gone. Only God's life-giving presence and beauty 
and us with him forever. But in order to live in this kingdom with him forever, one must not be good. Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And later he says, be holy as my father in heaven is holy. Be perfect as my father in heaven is perfect. He doesn't just call us to do some good. He doesn't just say like, ah, well, as long as you helped out in that soup kitchen a couple times, like, good. That's, I think you're going to make it. He calls us into perfection. But this call leaves us wanting because we don't have all that we need. We still choose evil. And evil desire creeps us on, up on us daily. Even after, um, after a great recognition of sin or we've, we've faced really tough repercussions because we've chosen the wrong thing, sin still wells up within us and we choose evil. We choose what we know to be wrong. We deserve no place in his perfect kingdom. And there's nothing you can do to deserve it. And that said, there's actually only one thing that God looks for. So we return to our courtroom scene and we see God as judge. We see us before the throne and we, we notice that he has this book in it written all the deeds of man, everything that's ever happened with absolute like unarguable truth. Like there's no question that this is what is there. And he doesn't look in the book and weigh out the good and the bad. He doesn't look at the book and try to see if you've done enough to be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the only thing that matters is that he makes this judgment that you will spend eternity with him but how can we get there? What is he looking for? He's either going to look in the book and he's going to see your nasty wound dressings, which is the way that Isaiah talks about our good works and our bad works. It's like something that you use to clean up a wound. Like you don't look like you're clothed in white and ready to enter the kingdom. You look like, you look like someone who's covered in blood and pus and infections and no way you're entering into that kingdom. Those are your good works. Or he'll see that you trusted his covering for those filthy rags. He'll see Jesus. And I'm going to have you turn to one more passage because this is my favorite passage in the whole Bible. This is in Romans 5. It's for this reason that we are called to be perfect, that there's no way we could enter the kingdom apart from being perfect, that Romans 5 reveals the truth that we need. This passage shows us that we are born in sin. It shows us that we are deserving of God's wrath and the judgment that is reserved for those who do wrong and oppose him. But God did not leave us under this judgment. But while we were helpless, made a way of life. And this is going to be a rather lengthy reading, but I think it's worth it because it's a beautiful passage. 
Romans 5, starting in verse 6. It says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath, from that judgment through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation or right relationship. Therefore, just as one man through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For now the law of sin was in the world, but the sin, sin was not imputed when there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from that one offense resulted in condemnation. We all deserve to go to hell. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, how much more those who receive the abundance of his grace and the gift of his righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, a guilty verdict. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. In Christ, we are freed from sin and made right before God. This isn't how we are born. We're born into the sin of Adam. We're born condemned. We're born into a state where we choose the wrong thing. We give in to those evil desires. We are part of the problem. The thing that we hate about those heinous criminals that exist in the world lives in us. It animates our actions. It makes us get into the fights that we don't really, we know are stupid. It makes us choose things that lead to death. We must recognize that we are not the judge, but God is. We must see that we cannot make ourselves worthy to pass this judgment and enter the kingdom, but God can. By turning away from our self-centered universe where we think we sit on the throne and turning towards the one who took the punishment for our sins, we find eternal life and we find present purpose. So as we turn to the courtroom we've set up one last time, let us see an example of how this will unfold. Isaac, could you help me out one more time? Isaac's going to be 
God the judge. Okay. The one who dies in his selfishness and pride is sent to hell forever. All right. So, for example, uh, this is an example that's given in the Bible. Um, we most people know the story of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man denied giving Lazarus any food. Lazarus dies um, in starvation, and um, the two actually die on the same night. And Lazarus enters into eternal life, but the, the rich man had, who had no compassion on Lazarus is in, in hell, in eternal torment. So he's, the rich man stands before God, and it's very clear that this rich man has not done a thing that is good, that he is, he's going to be judged on the basis of its actions. He, he denied this man food. He only cared about himself and his riches. And so he's cast into eternal judgment. But then, and pretty much everybody would agree, like, okay, well, that was a bad guy. Like, yes, he probably shouldn't be in the kingdom. Then this, the next person who steps up to the stand looks a little bit better. This is a Pharisee. He stands before the throne and he says, as you can see, I've done many works in your name. I prayed every day. Many times I committed the Bible to memory. Like, I know a lot of it. I've actually taught a lot of people the Bible. People know that I'm a, a really good guy. And God says, yes, I see that. I see you. But I see that you could never fulfill the law. The, despite all that you've done, you rejected the only way into the kingdom. Depart from me, I never knew you. You can't enter before God, the judge, based on the things that you've done. The last person that we see come up to the stand from the Bible is the thief on the cross. The thief, he too dies like every other human who has ever lived. Like you have a one in one chance you're going to die, as Alpha said this past week. And he comes before God, the judge. And God knows, though he does not see it, that this this thief, as he, he walks up, he maybe even thinks about these things like committed crimes throughout my life. I've given in to my evil desires and I've been worthily subjected to capital punishment. The Romans have sent me to a cross to die because I'm such a bad dude. And God looks in the book of life and he sees one thing. He sees his son's work. Covering all that this man has done. And he says, well done. You were a good and faithful servant. You spoke up for Jesus in your dying breaths. And your life was surrendered. You are righteous through my son's life. Welcome, my son. Thank you, Isaac. Guys, there's only one thing that you will bring before God on Judgment Day. Are you in Christ? Is your life hidden with Christ on high? Or do you stand in your own works, hoping that God's going to let you in? The good things that we've done, the bad things that we've done, really not the point. The point is, God has made a way Will you accept what Christ has done?
Will you give up your life in exchange for his life, his perfection? We're going to close this service. As you, as you bow your heads, close your eyes. I want to remind you that we have to unlearn what we've learned. We are not the judge. God is. We are not our savior. Jesus is. In Christ, everything we do has meaning and purpose. You were created to live for him, like for good works that he formed you for before you were even born. He created you for this. Will you accept the life that God offers? Father, we thank you for this precious gift that we could never earn, that we don't deserve, but we know that we, we deserve your condemnation. And today, as your church gathered, Lord, we want to worship you for this great gift. But Father, we also know that there are, there are people in our lives, there are people in my family, there are people in my workplace, or there are people around us, maybe even in the service, who don't know you, who today, if they, if they stood before you to give an account of their life, even though you have it in your book, they would... They would try to justify themselves. And Father, we, we pray that you would give us the boldness to be able to declare the wonderful work that you've done. And we pray that the, the misunderstandings about this world would be revealed to the people who don't know you. That they would recognize that they aren't judge. That they would recognize that they aren't savior they would recognize that you have made a way. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.